Oh, good evening. Please grab your Bibles and open them up with me to 2 Samuel chapter 3. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas, isn't it? Kind of nice, huh? 2 Samuel chapter 3. A couple weeks ago, we started into 2 Samuel, mentioned this is the transition now. Saul has been killed in battle and... David now is the king. He is, we saw that in chapter 2 that, that as it stands right now, only Judah, the tribe of Judah, recognizes him as, as king. One of Saul's sons, Ishbosheth, is made king over the remaining tribes of Israel. So right now, David is, is king of Judah. He is. He is um, uh, that is down in in the south side of the of the kingdom, northern northern tribes following Ishbosheth, Abner. Just a couple of names to remember; they're important in our story tonight. Abner is a chief or a commander, and was for Saul. He was Saul's commander in Saul's army, and he is the one who has been kind of the the backbone or the 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 one that is that is kind of placed Ishbosheth in this in this position as king. He uh, he is now the commander for Ishbosheth, the ongoing army that is there. And we see also that um, uh, David's men, uh, Joab, oversee or is the leader of of David's men. Last time and again, this is important. This will come into play here in a moment. Uh, Joab had two brothers, and they they had their, an initial skirmish, if you would. Uh, between the northern tribes and David's army. More the commanders kind of started this whole thing between them. And there was a battle that ensued from there, and David's men overpowered the others. But in, the, in, the, in that skirmish, uh, the, one, of the, one of the, well, Abner started running away, and one of the brothers of Joab was pursuing him. Asahel, and this is in chapter, chapter 2, and Abner said, stop running after me, turn to the side, I don't want to kill you, and he kept on pursuing him, and Abner then, it says that he's thrust his spear behind him and killed um, Ahis, uh, Asahel, sorry. So Joab then, they continue to, they continue to pursue him, but they decide then to back away why continue to fight against one another? That's an important piece as we will continue in our story tonight. Picking up where we left off last time in chapter 3. So 2 Samuel chapter 3. Now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew steadily stronger, but the house of Saul grew weaker continually. And I want to stop there for just a moment because, again, in this, we see something very important about David and the lessons that David learned along the way. In our flesh, again, we can only imagine putting ourselves in David's position here. Saul's dead now. And we saw the, the amazing integrity of David throughout the way that he had an opportunity to kill Saul on a couple of occasions but did not. He said, I cannot lay my hand on the Lord's anointed, but Saul's dead now. So you would think, my chance, let's go grab what's left. Let's go take it now. You know, God helps those who help themselves, right? I mean, that's, that's in here somewhere. 
No, it's not. <laughs> I love this, the patience of David. We're going to see in a moment that David remains king in this town, not over all, for seven and a half years. He continues to wait patiently on the Lord. He doesn't press forward. He doesn't push ahead. He waits on the Lord. He's learned his lesson as he's gone through. Psalm chapter 5 says in verse 3, and I, the, the New Living Translation says it this way. It says, every morning I bring my requests to you and wait expectantly. Now when we Think of that, waiting expectantly. To me, at first thought, that's almost an oxymoron. <laughs> to, to wait expectantly, I mean, that all, you know, but it doesn't, that they actually go beautifully together. When we wait on the Lord, his promises are true. We know that he is faithful. So we can wait expectantly, knowing that he is faithful, knowing that this is gonna take place. And I love that, as David penned that, Lord, I bring my requests to you and then I wait expectantly. Patiently, but it's expectantly. And in verse eight it says, O Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of my foes. Make your way straight before me. Not make my way straight before me. Make your way straight before me. Isaiah wrote, in chapter 40, those who wait for the Lord will gain a new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not get weary. Those who wait on the Lord. And we see here David continuing to wait on the Lord. He is in, he's in Hebron and he's going to stay there for seven and a half years. And he's like, okay, the Lord is going to take care of all of this. Again, one of great David's great strengths. And we see he grows steadily stronger as he continues to wait. However, as we've talked many times, one of the things that, we, that we, we appreciate about the Word of God and the heroes in the Bible is that it records for us their strengths as well as their weaknesses. And then, unfortunately here, as we're gonna see two through five, we are exposed here to David's, one of his great weaknesses. Verse two, sons were born to David in Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon, by Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess. His second, Keliab, by Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. The third, Absalom, the son of Makkah, the daughter of Tamai, the king of Geshur. The fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith. The fifth, Stephatiah, the son of Abital. And the sixth, Ithream, by David's wife, Eglah. These were born to David at Hebron. David, six different wives, six different sons. We see here David's weakness. The Bible, clear, the law clearly laid out to the kings early on, way before there were kings, that the kings should not multiply wives unto themselves, specifically to kings. But Jesus said, we go all the way back to the beginning. It was always set up that one man be with one woman Forever. That was the design for God. It never changed. Man bringing in all of these other things. And again, specifically to kings, it said, don't multiply the wives. Now, David could see, you know, I'm not multiplying, I'm adding. It was just one at a time. But, 
missing the point of, and the heart again behind what God is saying in this. And we don't see in this a direct rebuke of David. That does not mean that God is okay with this. That does not mean that, that, that somehow, you know, because David overall was a man after God's own heart, and here we have this little weakness, that, that God's going to look the other way on that. We can never take, again, that God blessing an overall thing in our life, that he's okay with areas in our lives that do, that go directly against his word. We're going to see a lot of problems that come in David's life because of the decisions he's made with these multiple wives. Just for instance, we're going to see this as we continue to study, but as we look back at the firstborn, Amnon, he's going to rape his half-sister and then be murdered by his half-brother, Absalom, who's listed in the list here. That's going to happen in this, amongst these sons that are born here. The, 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 the one, Adonijah, that's mentioned here, he's going to try to overthrow David and then Solomon, and he will eventually be executed. That's another one. Three of his other sons that are mentioned in this list here, not mentioned again later on. So obviously they either didn't amount to much, or they were ungodly, or you know, other things. None of them rose to greatness. So again, we see that, that just because there's no direct condemnation to that, that horrible things come from that. And God cannot, cannot bless sin in our lives. And so there, there is consequences for the decisions that are made that go against the word of God. Well, verse six, it came about while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David that Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. I believe, just reading through this as we look at this, that's the reason Abner was doing what he was doing. He knew that Ishbosheth was not a strong leader and that he could be the one that really held the power. And we see that coming through here. We're going to see that it wasn't because he didn't know the truth. We'll see that in a couple of verses. He knew. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Ahai. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? Today I show kindness to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not delivered you into the hands of David, and yet today you charge me of guilt concerning the woman. The, one of Saul's concubines, that the, the kind of the... The way it was done then is the king's wives and concubines, when a king died, they remained still property of the previous king or part of the previous king. They did not remarry. They did not go. And this kind of forcing this in here was a show of power of, of Abner to kind of take again in defiance. Now, either Ishbosheth is accusing him of this because he wants to bring Abner down, or Abner was actually doing this. We don't know. But regardless, Abner doesn't take kindly to the accusation. Um, not really quite sure, am I a dog's head? What kind of statement that was? It's the only time it's used in the Bible, so don't know. But certainly he's, he's upset. And he goes on to say then, in verse 9, May God do so to Abner, and more also, if as the Lord has sworn to David... I do not accomplish this for him to transfer the kingdom of the house of Saul and to establish the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan even to Beersheba. So we see this as the Lord has sworn to David. Abner knew. 
Abner knew that David was to be the king and that it was God's will for all of this to happen. And in that, we see something that's very important. It's not just enough to know the truth. Our lives have to match up with the truth that we know. Abner was living a life that completely went against what he said that he knew. He knew that the Lord had said that David was supposed to be king, but his life was one for his own pleasure, his own glory, his own benefit. He was promoting someone else to be king. But I also, we see the arrogance of Abner. As the Lord has sworn to David that I do not accomplish this for him. I'm going to take care of this. God, this is God's will. I'm going to do this for him. I'm going to, step, I'm going to help God get the process done. I'm going to, I, it, it's going to be me. God doesn't share his glory with anyone, including Abner. And we have to be careful of that. We have to be so careful of that. Even subtlety and, and words that we say can even betray our heart at times when we could say, you know, my plan, my ministry, my this, my that, <laughs> my vision for Calvary Chapel Surprise. As I shared with you several weeks ago, that, that, that always bothered me when people would ask me what my vision is for Calvary Chapel Surprise. I, God help me, I, don't, I wouldn't have the audacity to have a vision for somebody else's church. This is the Lord's church, his vision. I, I want to know what his vision is for Calvary Chapel Surprise, and he has revealed that to me and to others in leadership here. But we have to be very careful of that because that's an easy trap to fall into. That, again, this is the Lord's work, and he, praise God, he allows us to be a part of it. But Abner here, <laughs> that I do not accomplish this for him, that I will transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul to David. And he could no longer answer Abner, Isbosheth, a word because he was afraid of him, no doubt. His plan backfired. If that was his plan to maybe have him take, step back a little bit, he steps out here and is going over to now side with David. Then, verse 12, Abner sent messengers to David in his place saying, Whose is the land? Make your covenant with me and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring all Israel over to you. We're going to unite the clans. And he said, David, good. I mean, David's heart was that uniting peace anyway. He didn't, this ongoing war, he wasn't, again, meant back in chapter two, he wasn't a part of that initial skirmish. He doesn't want this. He doesn't want his fellow countrymen, his fellow Jews to be killed in this civil war. So good, I'll make a covenant with you, but I demand one thing of you. I need another wife. Namely, you shall not see my face unless you bring Michael, Saul's daughter, with you when you come to see me. Now, Michael, as we know, was David's first wife, the wife that, that Saul had made the, the, the proclamation to, that, you know, and, and David accepted that he would go out and, he'd, his, and the dowry was 100 Philistine foreskins, and remember, David went out and got 200. He said, so... David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife Michael, to whom I, I was betrothed for the husband uh, for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. That, that's my wife, six isn't enough. Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband. She's been 
remember Saul gave her to another man to make David jealous? From Padiel, the son of, of Laish, but her husband went with her, weeping as he went, and followed her as far as Barum. Then Abner said to him, go, return. So he returned. Abner's kind of a tough guy. Abner had consolation with the elders of Israel, saying, in times past you were seeking for David to be king over you. Now then, do it. Now he is out going around to the remaining people in Israel and again now drawing them back toward, to David, away from Ishbosheth. For the Lord has spoken of David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the land of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke in the hearing of Benjamin. Benjamin is the tribe of Saul, so now he's even going all the way into that territory. Where, where Ishbosheth, no doubt, is still is, is there. In addition, Abner went to the speaking in the hearing of David in Hebron, all that seemed good to Israel and the whole house of Benjamin. So everybody's in agreement moving forward in this. Then Abner and 20 men with him came to David at Hebron, and David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. Again, I see this amazing heart in David. David throws a feast for Abner. The Abner that was leading the, the charge at Saul's command to kill David. Abner was the one that was riding next to Saul all of those years trying to find David, trying to kill David. David and Abner have a long history. And most of it hasn't been a good one. David's been running from him. Abner would have loved nothing more than to be the one that that struck down David. Now we see all the way through this, and here we come, Abner comes to David, and David says, great. Let, we're gonna come together, and forgets all of that, and not only, he doesn't say, okay, you can come, but you're gonna be the lowest down, you know, and he, he throws a feast for him. What a great leader David is, and what a great example. Forgiving, not harboring bitterness from that, that's in the past. Abner said to David, let me arise and go and gather all Israel to my Lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you and that you may be king over all that your soul desires. So David sent Abner away and he went in peace. And behold, the, servant of God, of da the servants of David and Joab came from the raid and brought much spoil with them. So here's Joab. Now remember, Abner killed Joab's brother in battle. That's why I went through that before, because now that becomes important in our story. So all of this is going on, and Joab doesn't know anything about this. Joab's been out raiding and, and gathering spoil, and now he's coming back. Abner was not with David in Hebron. Abner has already gone away now, for he sent him away, and he had gone in peace. Notice, that's the second time that's said. When Joab and all the army that was with him arrived, they told Joab, saying, Abner, the son of Ner, came to the king, and he has sent him away, and he has gone in peace. Third time, in three verses. I think the Holy Spirit wants us to understand that, they would, that he went in peace. <laughs> that there was peace that was done. And I, when I read verse 23, the people, when they come to Joab with that, I hear joy in their hearts. Hey, Abner was here, and they've made peace together. David, 
everything's going to be good now. All of us can be, you know, live together in peace. This is good news. But notice Joab, verse 24, and before we even go this far, you can't blame him, can you? What we're going to see here, this reaction from Joab, his brother was killed. But notice again, Joab came to the king and said, what have you done? Not a good way to address the king. What have you done? What have you done? I can only imagine almost the anger in Joab's voice and in his countenance as he comes to the king. What have you done making peace with him? And I'm challenged by that. Again, how many times have I in my heart said to Jesus, what have you done forgiving that person? They hurt me. They, they hurt me deeply. What have you done? And we are called to be like David, not like Joab. Because when the king says there's peace, there's peace. Because he paid for it. He paid for that, whatever it was that they did to you. Whatever it was that they did to me. There's peace. There's been reconciliation with the Father. There's been forgiveness granted to that person. We need to forgive. But we see here that Joab could not. What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why then have you sent him away? He is already gone. He's not happy at all. You know Abner, the son of Ner, that he came to deceive you and to learn of your going out and your coming in to find out all that you are doing. Now, I don't believe that that was Joab's concern. He wasn't really concerned that, that Abner was there trying to get spy secrets. I believe, again, that this was he, was, he was the avenger of the blood for his brother. I mean, the, he had the right by law to avenge the blood of his brother. Now, the law is very specific, however. If, it's, if it happens in a, in a fight or self-defense, which Abner could certainly cl claim, he was running away, he even warned him several times, knock it off, I don't want to kill you, so could claim self-defense, you could run to a city of refuge. Here it says in verse 26, when Joab came out from David, he sent messengers after Abner and they brought him back from the well of Sirah, but David did not know it. So when Abner returned to Hebron, and Hebron was a city of refuge, Joab took him aside into the middle of the, the, the gate to speak with him privately and there he struck him in the belly so that he died on the account of the blood of Asahel, his brother. So Joab takes vengeance against Abner and kills him. Afterward, when David heard it, he said, I and my kingdom are innocent before the Lord forever of the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall on the head of Joab and on all his father's house, and may there not, not fail from the house of Joab one who has a discharge or who is a leper or who takes hold of a distaff or who falls by the sword or who lacks bread. So David proclaims a curse against the family and the, the descendants of Joab for this. He's, and he said, I'm innocent and my kingdom is innocent of this. Making that proclamation so that all know that he is not at all behind this. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because they had put their brother Asahel to death in the battle at Gibeon. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, tear your clothes and gird on sackcloth and lament over Abner and King David walked behind the buyer. 
Thus they buried Abner in Hebron, and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. The king chanted a lament for Abner and said, Should Abner die as, as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, nor your feet put in fetters. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. And all the people wept again over him. And again, seeing the heart of David, going back as we did a couple of weeks ago, when David lamented over Saul's death, here again, another one who wanted him dead, has now fallen, and he laments over that. He's, he's broken over that. Verse 35, then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was still day, but David vowed, saying, may God do to me, and more also if I taste bread or anything else before the sun goes down. Now all the people took note of it, and it pleased them. Again, here we see the people seeing David and seeing his heart, and a heart after God, and it pleased them. The people loved to see a leader like this. Just as everything the king did pleased all the people. So all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the will of the king to put Abner the son of Ner to death. Then the king said to his servants, do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? I am weak today, though anointed king, and these men, the sons of Zariah, are too difficult for me. May the Lord repay the evildoer according to his evil. Now, Joab is going to remain commander in David's army all the way through his life and will be a continued issue as we're going to see through this. Uh, but, and we see here David already saying, you know, this is a difficult, difficult man. Great leader of an army, but a difficult person and personality to deal with. Well, verse chapter 4. Now when Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost courage and all Israel was disturbed. No doubt, his knowing, Ishbosheth wasn't fooling anybody. He knew that he had his power because of Abner and he needed Abner on his side, hoping that this would have ended well and they could have gotten that back together. Now that he's gone, it says he lost courage. Certainly then all of Israel under his leadership was disturbed. Saul's son had two men who were commanders of bands. The name of one was Bana and the name of the other Rakab, sons of Rimen the Beerothite, the sons of Benjamin. So all, they, they are part of the tribe of Benjamin. They are related to Ishbosheth through Benjamin. The Beerites fled to Beerothite and whatever, chapter, verse three. Verse four. Now Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son crippled in his feet. This information will come again. This is just a little, little information for us here today. It'll come into play again in later chapters. Jonathan, Saul's son, the one that David loved, the, the best friends. Jonathan had a son, and this will be the only remaining male in Saul's line when this is all said and done. Crippled in his feet, he was five years old when the report came of Saul and Jonathan to Jezreel, and his nurse took him and fled, and it happened that she was in a hurry to flee. He fell and became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. We're going to learn more of Mephibosheth later. We just learned here that in all the chaos when Saul died, they were worried about making sure that he got out okay. The nurse dropped him or he fell or something and he became lame. Verse five now continues this, the part that we looked at at the first couple of verses. The sons of Rimon, the Beorite, Rakab and Bana, departed and came to the house of Ishbosheth in the heat of the day while he was taking his midday rest. So the king, taking a nap in the afternoon in the heat of the day, they came 
to the middle of the house as if to get wheat. Now their commanders, probably normal for them to come get food for their, their, their soldiers. And they struck him in the belly, and Rechab and Benah, his brother, escaped. When they came into the house, he was lying on his bed in his bedroom. They struck him and killed him and beheaded him. And they took his head and traveled by the way of Arabah all night. So these two commanders, again, Benjamites, go in where Ishbosheth is taking a nap. They kill him in his sleep and cut off his head and take off and run. And verse 8 says, Then they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Behold, the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. Thus the Lord has given my Lord the king vengeance this day on Saul and his descendants. These couple of guys make obviously a couple of big mistakes. First of all, they bring the head of Ishbosheth to David. Behold the head. You know, I can just imagine the scene, pulling it out of a bag or whatever. Behold that. They're assuming that David is just as wicked as they are. They're assuming that David is just like them. And we see over and over again that David is not like them, certainly. We saw this again last time with David lamenting over Saul's death. David never considered Saul his enemy. Saul considered David his enemy, but David never considered Saul his enemy. If anything, again, he protected him. David always considered Saul his king, and he, and he always protected that. And again, they totally missed that, so they assumed that David was like them, but the other huge mistake they did was bring God into their sin. Thus the Lord has given my Lord the king vengeance this day. They bring God into their sinful act. God has done this. God has delivered this. God has brought vengeance to you, you know, for you today. Bringing God into their sin. Don't ever do that. Again, it, it, to sin is one thing. To bring God into the sin is a to takes it to a totally different level. What do I mean? I've heard many people say, as an example, I know the Bible says that we're not supposed to live together if we're not married. But God has given us peace about it. Don't bring God into your sin. I've actually had somebody talk, tell me about that, about pornography. I know that it's a sexual sin, but you know, God's given me peace about it. And my wife's okay with it. Dude, don't bring God into your sin. The word of God is clear. And one of them is, thou shalt not commit murder. Don't bring God into your sin. This was cold-blooded murder. They went into it. He was sleeping in his bed. They killed him. Again, this is one in, in their own tribe, their own people. And again, they do it for a reward, and David sees right through it. Verse 9, David answered, uh, Rechab and Benah, his brother, sons of Rimmon, the, the Berethite, and said to them, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all distress, by the, you know, again, God, he's the one who has redeemed my life. He's the one who has saved me time and time again. He's the reason I'm alive. He didn't need your help. When one told me, saying, Behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing me good news, I seized him and killed him in Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. 
How much more when wicked men have killed an unright, a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood from your hand and destroy you from the earth? Uh-oh. <laughs> that didn't work out like they thought. Then David commanded the young men and they killed them, cut off their hands and feet and hung them out beside the pool in Hebron. But the head of Ishbosheth, they buried in the grave of Abner in Hebron. Now, it's been kind of a bloody couple of chapters. It's kind of the time that it was. It was a very bloody time. Here we see another aspect of David. He's, very, he's, he's just. And all of these aspects of David as a leader, not, not putting up with, with that type of thing, how he dealt with Abner, all of this stuff, a great leader and the people being drawn to him, Chapter 5, then. A very subtle word, but I, I think it's important that we see it. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David. This is after all of the years in the wilderness. This is after now seven, seven and a half years of this going on where he is now. Then, God's perfect timing. God's plan. You know, we saw so many, several times as we walked through the life of David in the wilderness times where he was getting frustrated with the timing. <laughs> he was getting frustrated with the process. But God's perfect timing, then, after all of these things, the perfect day, God knew this day was coming. He promised David this day was coming. And here it is. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David, and I like that. David finally learned it. He got it. He's not out campaigning. He's not out telling the people to come, hey, today's the day. No, then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, behold, we are bone, we are your bone and your flesh. Previously, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and in. And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel, and you will be the ruler over Israel. Notice who's saying that. The people are. David's not needing to remind them of these things. Again, he's not out campaigning and pushing for this. The people are now coming to him. So all of the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them before the Lord at Hebron, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. All, after all of this time, now the promise is, is here. He's, he's king over all Israel. We see in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 23 and following, don't have time to go through the list, but over 340,000 soldiers from all of the different tribes come to be a part of this, this moment here. They come from all over Israel. And, and again, just the, over three, about 350,000 come. Just imagine the scene. And here now David is anointed king. It says that he was at Hebron and reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. Now, Jerusalem we know today as the, as the 
the the main the the main city in Israel. It was the capital of Israel. It was the it was where the kings lived, starting here with David. And it was it's the it's the it, it's that place that is so special to all of Israel. But it wasn't until this time that we're going to read about right now that it came into the hands of the Israelites. Up until that time, it was enemy-controlled territory, even though it's right in the center. They could never conquer it. We see in Joshua and in Judges that they never took possession of Jerusalem until right now. Now the king, verse 6, and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land. And they said to David, you shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will turn you away, thinking David cannot enter here. So this massive army is coming up, but they are so secure in their fortress that is built around Jerusalem. And it is, it's, a, it's strategic where Jerusalem is. It sits up on a, on a hill, and there's valleys that are all around it, and the walls that were built up around it. And they're so cocky, they're thinking basically, we're going to go to sleep and we're going to leave blind and lame men on the wall. You can't even get past them. Taunting David. Nevertheless, verse 7, David captured the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him reach the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul through the water tunnel. Therefore, they say the blind or the lame shall not come into the house. Through the water tunnel. Now we have more information of this in, in, in First Chronicles, but there was a water shaft and that, that fed down into a, a pool of waters, how they got their, their water. David knew that because David grew up where? In Bethlehem. Bethlehem is right outside Jerusalem. David grew up in this area. David herded, herded the sheep. He was a shepherd in that area. He knew that area like the back of his hand. And he told them, he says, guys, there's a waterway. There's a water shaft that goes straight up. Whoever will go up and go in through that shaft into the city and let the rest of us in will be rewarded. Abner, or um, Joab's the one that's going to do that, as we see in, a, in another chapter. But okay, so they capture the city. Verse 9, so David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built all around them from the Milo and inward. David became greater and greater for the Lord God of hosts was with him. Then Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David with cedar trees and carpenters and stone maces. And they built a house for David, a massive structure, big, glorious thing. And again, a king from a neighboring country sends people and workers to do this. David realized that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. Meanwhile, David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he had, he had come from Hebron and more sons and daughters were born to David. And the names are listed for us in 14 through 16. Verse 17. When the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to seek out David. And when David heard of it, he went down to the stronghold. So now the Philistines here. And again, we remember the story, you know, David in and out with the Philistines. Now they heard that David is now king over all of Israel. So the Philistines now come against him. And they're coming against him in Jerusalem. The Philistines came and spread themselves out in the valley of Raphaim, which is to the 
to the north and uh, west of Jerusalem. Then David inquired of the Lord. And I love that. David's learned his lesson. He knows where to go first when these things happen. Saying, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. So David came to Baal Perazim and defeated them there. And and he said, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breakthrough of waters. Therefore, he named the place, the place Baal Perazim. David prays to the Lord, here they come. Here's my enemy. They're all out before me. Shall I go up against them? And again, the Lord, in, in his response, I love that. I you go up for I will certainly deliver them into your hand. Certainly. Is there any doubt that they were going to win? Any doubt that there was not going to happen just as that? And David moves out in that confidence. David went into that battle knowing the battle was already won because God said, I will certainly defeat the enemy. And I'm drawn back again to that thing that it tells us in Romans 8, that we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. I've said this many times, probably getting tired of hearing it, but you're going to hear it again. Conquerors leave the battlefield victorious. More than conquerors go into the battlefield victorious. We go in knowing the outcome. We win because of the king that we have. And following King David into this, because God had promised certain victory, they had certain victory. It says that they abandoned their idols there the Philistines, as they were running away, dropped their gods and went running away. Gods, you need new gods. If the gods you have, you, you lose in battle. David and his men carried them away. Again, First Chronicles tells us they burned them. They destroyed them. Verse 22, now the Philistines came up once again and spread themselves out in the valley of Rephaim. And when David saw this, he did exactly what he did the previous time. And went out in the previous promise that he had from God. No, it's not what it says, right? The same situation. Why doesn't he just do the same thing? Because God's not a God of formula. God's not a God of one size fits all for every situation. David did exactly what he should do, even though the attack came the exact same way. He went to the Lord and said, what should I do? Should I go up? He inquired of the Lord. Shall we go directly up? He says, you shall not go directly up. We're going to do something different this time. You shall not go directly up. Circle around behind them and come at, and come at them in front of the balsam trees. It shall be when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees that you shall act promptly, for then the Lord will have gone out before you to strike the army of the Philistines. Then David did so, just as the Lord had commanded him, and struck down the Philistines from Geba as far as Gezer. God is not a God of formulas. He does amazing and miraculous things in different ways, even though it's the same the same situation, the same place. God does things differently. God works in different ways. 
You know, I had a, I had a neat experience today. I had, I had lunch with Pastor Greg from Radiant today. And we've developed a good, pretty good friendship over the years. But we sat there and we talked about all of the wonderful things that God is doing here and there. They're two blocks away from here. And one of the things that amazed me was the, all of the wonderful things that are happening at Radiant Church, but how different they're doing things up there than we do here. But God is still working in both places. You mean there's not just one way to do things? Well, you'd think so with all of the books that are out there. You want to have a mega church, you do it this way. You want to have this, you want to do it. You got to follow this formula. God's not a God of formulas. He's got a miraculous things. There's too many books. We need to pray more. We need to listen better. We need to cultivate that intimate relationship. As it says in Isaiah 30, I'll tell you where to go. Listen. Your ears will hear, this is the way. Walk in it. And it's specific. We need to be listening. Okay, Lord, where, where is it? And I love, I love this. Verse 24, it shall be when you hear the sound of the marching in the trees. What does that mean? I don't know. I wonder if David had any idea. Marching in the trees, what in the world does that mean? Well, let's go to the balsam trees and find out. And they're standing there, and all of a sudden they're listening, and all of a sudden, oh, there it is. And it says, when you do, act promptly. When the Holy Spirit speaks, move. Do what the Lord says. Fo follow his direction. Be obedient. And watch the walls come down. Watch the enemy fall down in front of you. Watch the enemy flee. I, I, I purposely went over it quickly and only have a couple of minutes, but I, I think that this is... There's something in this that, again, reading the, that book that by Alan Redpath as he drew this out, it's a beautiful picture that we see in this. I mentioned to you that Jerusalem had never come under control of the, of the Jewish people until this time. And we see that, that David takes over the stronghold, it says, the stronghold of Zion. And it didn't happen until all of Israel came under the kingship of David. It didn't happen when he was just king in Hebron. It happened when all of Israel came under his kingship. You want victory in your life? Your whole life needs to come under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Not just a part of it. Not just Hebron in your life, but all of it. All of the problems that we have in our life, the problems that we struggle with, with, with whatever sin or whatever issue that might be, it always is a lordship problem. Even just talking about those others before, pornography is a lordship problem. Any struggling with any type of 
sinful behavior is a lordship problem. If Jesus is Lord of your life, Lord of all of your life, we have victory in those areas. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. The New King James says, the pulling down of strongholds. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. The obedience of Christ, the lordship of Jesus. And I love that, again, that picture that is here, that once everything came under the kingship of, of King David, they had victory in that area. But you know what else also happened? What happened right away next? The enemy attacked. <laughs> when we do that, when we make Jesus Lord of our life, Lord over all aspects of our life, we will have victory, but expect a full frontal attack. The enemy's gonna attack. What do we do? Read a book. We pray, and we listen, and we act, right? Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for your patience with us and your desire to grow us into all that we can be through obedience to you. Lord, our desire is to truly make you Lord of all, Lord of every aspect of our life. King Jesus, you take the throne of our hearts. Lord, we want victory over those things in our lives that we struggle with. We know we only have victory in you, not in our flesh. Lord, we can't do it. We will continually fail on our own. It happens when we place you in your rightful place. Lord, speak to us. <laughs> speak to us as we seek you. As we sang before, draw us near and we will run after you. Thank you and we praise you, Lord, for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. God bless you. Have a good rest of the week.